Hebrews chapter 8 verses 1 to 13. Now, the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on, the, on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at the sanctuary, that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build a tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for dinner, but God found fault with the people and said, These days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the land to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put the laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. So, we've reached one of those really helpful moments where the writer says to us, here's my main point. Here's what it's been about. If you've got a bit lost, maybe you missed a week, maybe you got a bit confused, we're getting to the main point, we're going to hear what this has been building up to. But before we unpack that and before we look at what it means for us today, we really want to make sure that when we hear the writer use the terms they're using, we understand what they meant. Because language changes and culture changes and some of the things that would have been really familiar to the first listeners, the first readers of this letter, might not be that familiar to us. Now, there are loads of concepts in here, things like priests and temples and sacrifices, but we're going to look at some of those next week. So for this week, really want us to zoom in on covenant. Because the concept of a covenant would have been a really familiar one in that context. But actually, for us today, it's not really a part of our system. I guess... The best analogy that we have, maybe the closest thing we have to a covenant would be the covenant of marriage. But actually in our society, many commentators refer to it as a decaying covenant. The, the thing that it used to mean is not necessarily what it means to everyone. And in fact, in some countries now, people do a prenuptial agreement before they get married. It's like that marriage agreement isn't quite enough. So they need this legal agreement to sort out what happens if it all goes wrong. But still, it's a somewhat helpful image to us, the idea of two people 
making an agreement and going through a ceremony to enact and inaugurate that agreement. And it's an agreement that commits them to future behaviours that are going to govern and work out their relationship. So that's kind of the closest thing we've got to a covenant. But I want us to think about what a covenant was in this context, in the context that the first readers, the first hearers of Hebrews would have thought about. So in the ancient world, a covenant was an agreement between two parties, very often with some kind of power imbalance, so one very powerful and one less so, maybe one big mighty empire and a smaller kingdom. And it was an agreement about the ways they would relate to one another, the duties and the obligations on both sides. There'd be clear consequences for breaking the covenant. And so usually when a covenant was first agreed, there'd be some bloodshed, an animal usually, to maybe signal what would happen to the party that broke the covenant if they did. Now, the covenants that we find in the Hebrew Bible actually really resemble features of other covenants that archaeologists have dug up from the ancient Near Eastern period. And the really interesting thing is that some sceptics like to say that the narratives that we have of the times of the patriarchs, of Moses and Abraham and all that lot, that those were made up later on. They're kind of myths that were constructed in the time of the kings to give the people a really great backstory. But the problem with that is that actually the kinds of covenants that we find in the first few books of the Bible, actually they so closely resemble other covenants that we know date from that period. And, and actually they're quite different from covenants that we find from the period of the kings. So that's a really interesting point about trusting the reliability of the Bible and the story that it presents. But anyway, I want us to think about the covenants that we find in scripture, the backdrop to this new covenant that the writer talks about. So there are three major covenants I want to look at. And a really important thing to point out is that a covenant kind of implies a distance. I don't make a covenant with myself because I have no need to, because I am myself and I'm always with myself. And actually, in Genesis, in the very beginning, there is no covenant between God and man. There's just a relationship, a reliable relationship. But later on, covenant is needed. And the first covenant that we have is a word that I can't say. <laughs> so it's the covenant relating to Noah. And it's called the Noahic, Noahic? I don't know. Anyway, Noah's covenant. So Noah's covenant is the promise that God makes so there's been this flood and it's been really terrible and the whole earth's been flooded, but God says, I'm not going to do that again. So he makes this covenant. But the interesting thing is it's not just with Noah. So it's actually with the whole of humanity. <laughs> Even turtles. It's with every living creature, the sheep, the fish, the Ninja Turtles and the elephants. So God makes this covenant with them and he promises what he's going to do. And interestingly, it's, it's pretty one way, actually. So there isn't necessarily a requirement for them to do anything, but it's still seen as the first covenant that we find in scripture. The second one, maybe a bit easier for me to say, 
is the Abrahamic. Now, the Abrahamic covenant has a more narrow focus. So where Noah's covenant was with all of humanity and every living creature, actually, the covenant that's made with Abraham is made to a specific family. So we've got Abraham and his wife, and then we've got their children, and then their children's children, and so on and so on, down the lines. So the Abrahamic covenant there, it it's about God saying what he's going to do. In fact, let's read it. Genesis 12, 1-3, God says, I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you, I'll make your name great and you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I'll curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God takes this one family, and even though the covenant is quite specific to them, actually the intention of it is that universal blessing. All people. Doesn't this time quite specify the fish and the sheep and the ninja turtles, but all people are going to be blessed through the blessing that's poured into this family line, the family of Abraham. But this covenant, unlike the covenant with Noah, is not a one-way. It's two-way. So God tells Abraham what he will do and the things that he will give to Abraham, the ways he will bless him. But he also requires something from Abraham. And that's where circumcision enters into the picture. And also there's this quite grisly scene of an animal cut in half and God moving between the two halves of the animal, which was actually a really standard way to kind of kick off a covenant in that era. So that's the covenant with Abraham. But the third covenant is actually the one that the, the writer of the Hebrews calls the old covenant, the first covenant, because it's, it's kind of the most significant. It's the most detailed and it's mosaic, as in the covenant involving Moses. So the mosaic covenant is with the children of Abraham, but actually with a very specific branch of the children of Abraham. So it's not through the line of Ishmael, it's not through the line of Esau, it's through Isaac and Jacob, and then the 12 sons. So the Mosaic Covenant with the people is, again, God saying what he'll do for them. But it's also calling them to a whole way of life that marks out this covenant that is their obligations under the covenant. And, you know, the features of that covenant are things like the Ten Commandments, the priesthood, the tabernacle, and then later the temple, the sacrifices, the festivals. All of those things mark out the content of this covenant. And of course, if you read the books that tell us about this covenant, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, you'll, you'll also see a lot of blood. <laughs> like I said, that was a really common way to start a covenant in the ancient Near Eastern cultures that this was a part of, was to, for there to be bloodshed. And, and we find that with this covenant as well, that the whole sacrificial system involved the shedding of blood, the loss of life. And... It also involved a threat to the lives of those who broke the covenant. There were serious consequences for breaking a covenant with Almighty God. So these are the three main covenants. And the one really that the writer to, to the Hebrews wants us to focus on is the elements of this Mosaic covenant. And like I said, some of those things like 
tabernacle and temple and priesthood and sacrifice. I think we're going to get to some of those things in the next few weeks. But today we're going to look at the covenant as a whole. So three covenants and they kind of start universal and then we zoom in through the family of Abraham down to a specific branch of that family and we end up with this very detailed, very comprehensive covenant, which is the covenant that the writer is referring us to, the old covenant. And at this point, he or she says something which I think you can say is pretty controversial. Let's look at verse seven. So if there'd been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. Did God create, set up, establish a faulty covenant? Something wrong with it? Well, verse 8 goes on to say, God found fault with the people. So it wasn't that God was faulty, but the people were faulty. If we picture our covenant as like a link between two parties, the link is fine, the first party is fine, but the second party is flawed and always will be. I'm going to give you an illustration for this, but before I do, I need to tell you a really important fact. And you can Google this if you don't believe me. The fact is this, no one can draw a bicycle from their mind. And you can test this out after the service, in between the service and Zoom tables, grab some paper and draw a bike and it'll be hideous. So having told you that, I'm going to draw a bike from my mind. Now, a simple bike basically consists of a front wheel and then it's joined by a frame, some handlebars, let's have a seat, need to sit on something, let's have some pedals. It's joined to a back wheel. But imagine if on my new bike, the back wheel is wonky. I won't be able to go anywhere. My front wheel is great. The thing joining the two wheels is perfect, but I can't move because of this wonky back wheel. And if it was wonky in that plane, that'd be pretty hard. If it was wonky in the other plane, it'd be even harder. It's not going to move. So imagine I want to replace this wheel, it's beyond fixing, and so I contact all the manufacturers. People had this experience actually during the first lockdown where bike parts were out of stock. And so I contact the manufacturers and I try and get a new back wheel, but every back wheel that I get is the same. They're all just wonky, mess up, and none of them are going to be adequate to make the bike go. It's like there's a problem at the factory and it's just churning out wonky, unfixable wheels. So what do I do? I live in a car-free development, so I can't buy a car. I need a bike. I'm stuck. What God does is gives a new covenant. But unlike the previous covenant that had the front wheel, which is God in this case, and the back wheel, which is faulty humanity, and the covenant is a link between the two, God designs a whole new kind of bicycle that operates with two front wheels. Two perfect front wheels joined by an exciting new kind of frame. And that's the new covenant. We humans, all of us, are flawed, wonky. We, the covenant doesn't go, it doesn't work with us in it. And the Mosaic covenant, even though 
the actual covenant itself was good because it was God's. And even though God himself was perfect, we were not. Humans were not. We were broken. And that's why the incarnation of Jesus is such an important Christian doctrine, and one that we need to understand and we need to defend. Because actually Jesus comes as the incarnate God and as a blameless human being to take the place of the back wheel. Fully human, but perfect, not flawed. And so this new covenant can be formed that, that works, it goes, it can get somewhere because of Jesus. So it's almost, in a sense, like God makes a covenant with himself. Jesus is referred to as the mediator between God and humanity because he is both divine and human. The writer turns to the prophet Jeremiah to tell us what this new covenant is like. So we know that God found fault with the people. And so he said, I'm going to establish a new kind of covenant. I want to just notice a couple of things. Verse 8 says, it will be with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. Now that was really significant to us. That just might sound like a bit of repetition, but actually... At the time that Jeremiah was writing, he was writing at a time when the the nation had been split into two and that had gone on now for many years and many different kings and the two different nations and one lot have gone off into exile and the next lot are about to and there's really no hope in the natural of the two coming together again. But there's something about the new covenant that's going to see the nation reconstituted, reunited, Israel and Judah back together again. It's really significant. And we also see in verse 10 that God's going to write his laws on the people's hearts. So it's no longer just about this elite class of scribes who know the law and tell other people about it. Remember that this is in a a pre-literate culture. So not everybody is necessarily literate and not everybody, even by, by this point, is able to speak the language that the Hebrew Bible is written in. And so there's this whole class of people whose job is to translate and explain the law. But here, through Jeremiah, the Lord is saying that he's going to write his laws on the people's hearts. That's what this new covenant is going to be like. And then verse 12, I'll forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Now, when God talks about forgetting in that way, it's not like I might forget where my glasses are when they're on my head. In, in the Hebrew language, a lot of the verbs that for us are like mental verbs actually are quite active. So, for example, the verb to hear, like when God hears us, it doesn't just mean that the sound of us reaches the ears of God. It means that God acts on the cries that he hears. That's what hearing means. And in the same way, forgetting and remembering are active So to remember someone's sins is is to hold them against them and to act on that. And God says, I won't. I'll no longer remember their sins. That's what this new covenant is going to be like. It's so different. It's beautiful. But how is it possible? It's possible because of Jesus. The perfect God makes a covenant with imperfect humanity by Jesus standing in our place. The wonky wheels being replaced with a perfect one. That's how it's possible.
is not a one-sided covenant, it is two-sided. And Jesus actually represents both sides in a way because he is divine and human. Now the old covenant requires circumcision and ongoing sacrifices in the temple in order for the people to be right with God. At the time that this book that we're studying was written, the second temple was either either had been destroyed or was about to be destroyed. So that whole system was really on its last legs. And it's impossible to understate just how central the temple was to the people's worship and relationship with God. It wasn't just a convenient building for worship. It was the place where heaven met earth, the only place, actually, that they were allowed to worship. So all the other nations would have a temple here, a shrine there, a pole there, whatever. No, they had one place where they could meet with God. And that place was about to go. But the writer to Hebrews is saying it doesn't matter, actually, the loss of that temple. It doesn't matter that we can't make these sacrifices anymore because the sacrifice has been made. The high priest has come. The temple is actually embodied in Jesus himself. And that's what the new covenant is like. So what does it mean for us? Some of the stuff that we've talked about today feels quite far away and long ago. Culturally very different. Way more blood and squeamish stuff. What does it mean for us? Well, the writer's main point is that we don't need another priest. At the time of writing, I think he's referring primarily to the Jewish concept of a priest, that priesthood which was about to disappear. But I think even today, those of us who aren't Jewish, we we sometimes try and almost establish a new priesthood. We kind of want there to be someone between us and God. Maybe we feel safer that way if someone can mediate between us and God, but we don't need to look for a priest. We already have a perfect mediator with God, and that's Jesus. So the writer is saying we have the highest of all high priests. There's no need for any other priest. Sometimes we might wonder if the new covenant is is enough. Can we be certain of pleasing God? Can we be confident that our relationship with him is healthy? I said at the beginning that most covenants in the ancient time were sealed with blood. They were kind of commenced with the shedding of blood as a sign to the little guy of what might happen to him if he broke it. Luke 22 verses 19 to 20 says, This is Jesus at the Last Supper, the night before he's crucified. He took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then, in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So the blood that inaugurated the new covenant was the blood of Jesus. Not shared as a warning to us of what's going to happen to us if we transgress, but actually paying the full price of the transgression that already existed. Jesus himself says, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down. And he willingly shed his blood to make that new covenant possible, to inaugurate this new relationship with God that had been foretold through the Hebrew Bible and then is fulfilled in Jesus. So then the question is, 
How do we live in this covenant? What does it mean? And I think in closing, it means two things for us today. It means that we have covenant confidence in Christ. Our confidence is only in the work of Christ. It's not in our works. Maybe since following Jesus, you've got a little bit shinier, a little bit friendlier, a little bit nicer. That's not your confidence. Maybe you know a lot of Bible. Maybe everything that I've said today is like your ABCs and you've not learned anything. That's not your confidence. Maybe you've been following Jesus for a while, but actually you're not very shiny. Maybe lockdown has brought out the worst in you and you're kind of a rat bag. That's not your confidence. And maybe you don't know the difference between Noah and Abraham and was it Moses in the ark? That's not your confidence. Our confidence is not in our righteousness. It's not in our knowledge. It's in the work of Christ. Because he's the one that makes that covenant possible for us to be in with God. Our confidence is in Christ alone. But if you don't call yourself a follower of Jesus, if you're not a Christian, then I really hope that today's message has been an invitation to you to be in that covenant. Maybe you don't really know what the status of your relationship with God is. Are you friends? Are you enemies? Are you frenemies? We can be certain. That's what the message of this passage is, that we can be really certain about our relationship with God because it isn't just an emotional thing that changes every day, but it's a covenant relationship, a stable one that relies on the work of someone who is absolutely reliable, and that is Jesus. We're all invited to be friends of God. Whether you're in the line of Abraham or not, it doesn't matter. You're invited. Good, bad, ugly, we're invited to have our sins forgiven and forgotten and to have God's laws written on our hearts with no one required to stand between us and God because of Jesus. That's the invitation. You don't have to be perfect. You can be the wonkiest of wonky back wheels and you're invited into the covenant. All it requires is that you put your trust, your confidence in the work of Jesus, in that God made man, God come to put on flesh and and live among us in order to do the thing that we could never do and to be perfect on our behalf. So we're going to turn now to worship and we're going to sing a song that really focuses our, our attention on that work that Jesus did in coming from heaven to earth to be with us and then going to the cross to die for us and then being raised to new life, the first fruits that we're going to follow. So let's turn now to worshipping the one who has done the work so that we can live in this new covenant with God.